0: Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would meet us now in your word, and we pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts, help us to understand how painful treachery is, and make us faithful, we ask. Cause us to know the one who was betrayed that traitors might be forgiven. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I would invite you this morning to open your Bible to Psalm 55. And as we turn there, I would invite you to reflect with me on the way that you should be able to trust friends, particularly long-standing friends, and even more particularly, long-standing, like-minded friends. So, you know, when, when you share a worldview with somebody, when you when you look at the world the same way with, that, that someone does, and then perhaps you pass through seasons of difficulty with the, this person, and you experience this person's counsel and comfort and, and their reassuring presence, you expect, I'm going to be able to count on my friend. And I would suggest that in Old Testament Israel, there were were people like David who understood that God's purpose was to make all things new, to make all things right. And the way that God was going to do this was through this promised seed of the woman. And then these, these blessings, these promises were made to Abraham. And then by David's day, I think probably you've got people recognizing, okay, David is the Lord's anointed. David is the one who's in this line of promise. And we're aligned with him. And we are thereby engaged in God's great purpose of renewing the whole world which has been despoiled and ruined by sin. And with, with this, this cadre of, of like-minded people, we can add in this idea that, that uh, parents, you would think, would be able to trust their children. In spite of all of the evidence to the contrary in history and in life, Still, parents think, all I've invested in this person, all I've given to this person, all I've made possible for my child, surely they'll be loyal to me. As we come to Psalm 55, we come to a psalm that is centered on this statement in verses 12 through 15. Notice in the psalm how right above verse 12, if you're looking at the ESV like I am, there's sort of a blank space. And then verses 12 through 15 are all kind of close together, and then there's a blank space after verse 15. This, there are actually seven of these units in the psalm. And, and the fourth one, the middle one in the psalm, is verses 12 through 15, which means that the whole psalm is centered on this central statement where David describes this one who has betrayed him. And then there, there are, I think there are corresponding units outside of that where uh, the third and the fifth match one another and, and so forth, all the way out to the first and the last. And we'll, we'll think about those as we go through them. Uh, but, but right now, I, I just want to establish this idea that this is a psalm where David is responding to the fact that he's been betrayed. And Todd read earlier in the service about an incident in 2 Samuel chapter 15 where David's counselor joined Absalom. David's counselor Ahithophel was probably of David's own generation. He he had probably been with David through the time of difficulty when Saul was persecuting him. And then he had probably been with David as David was established as king, and he had probably given David wise and good counsel that David had relied on. And David had come, I, I, I sense, I suspect, that David had come to the conclusion, this guy is with me. We agree with one another on the big truths of life, and I can count on him, and he's wise, and he gives me good counsel. And then uh, it so happened that Ahithophel had a son named Eliam, and Eliam had a daughter named Bathsheba, and David uh, committed sin with Bathsheba. And I think there's, this is, you know, back in Psalm 51, we read about this, and then we read about these difficulties that David had seeming to flow out of that in Psalms 52, 53, and 54. And now we come to Psalm 55, and I think we're in another psalm that is reflecting difficulty in David's life that's connected to his sin with Bathsheba. So as, as we come to this psalm, David is is responding to a traitor. And, um, you, you know, we're not really dealing with uh, with the narrative of Samuel here, but I would just note that David did repent, uh, and the Lord did forgive him, and it 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 is the case that David continued as the Lord's king. So to oppo- oppose David is to oppose God. And I, I don't I don't know what your experience of treachery has been like, or what your expense of experience of someone. Uh, being disloyalty, disloyal or unfaithful to you has been like. But I suspect that you can relate to this, this process that you might go through, where maybe first you, you, you're shocked and appalled that this would happen. And then as you, as you work through it, you begin to think, okay, we were in agreement on these big ideas. Has this person changed their mind about the ideas, or has this person changed their mind about me? And, and with David, I think there's warrant for him to conclude, okay, yeah, Ahithophel has changed his mind about me. Nevertheless, David remains as the Lord's king. And so in this psalm, I think we have to see David responding as the Lord's king to someone who has sided with those who are against the Lord and against his anointed. And, and we see the anguish and the pain that this brings into David's life. Uh, in the first section, uh, verses 1 through 8 here, where we see David's terrified prayer in response to this. You, you notice there's a blank space after verse 3, before verse 4. So the first unit is in verses 1 through 3, and here David is calling on the Lord to hear his prayer. So look at one, verse 1. He says, Give ear to my prayer, O God. And I would suggest that this alone is remarkable. It's remarkable because because of what we're going to find down in verses 12 through 15. David has been betrayed by a human being. And his response is not to go talk that person down in public. His response is not to go uh, engage in a a publicity campaign to try to reestablish his reputation. His response is to turn to the Lord and call on him. And that is instructive. This is the same thing we see again and again and again with Moses. As he's, as he's dealing with opposition and persecution again and again. Moses, he doesn't defend himself. He just turns to the Lord in prayer. And that's what David does here. Give ear to my prayer, O God. And hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. Attend to me and answer me. And then David begins to get into how he's feeling emotionally about this. He says, I am restless in my complaint, and I moan. Have you ever experienced a situation like this where you just can't sit still? This nervous anxiety and this this excess energy will not allow you to have peace and to be able to sit still, and that seems to be what David is, is dealing with. He's restless He's roaming around, and he's, and he's moaning, and he's complaining, and he's calling on the Lord. Verse 3, he's explaining why. Because of the noise of the enemy. So Ahithophel and Absalom, they're making all this noise against David and against his claim to the throne. Because of the oppression of the wicked, he continues there in verse 3. And then at the end of the verse, for they drop trouble upon me, and in anger they bear a grudge against me. The, you know, the, the, this may or may not be Ahithophel. If it was Ahithophel, I think he had cause to bear a grudge against David. Perhaps he should have been able to forgive David, um, given the fact that the Lord did, given the fact that David repented, but he, he apparently didn't because he sided with Ahithophel. If it's not Ahithophel, it's a similar situation that we're not, that we don't have narrated back in the book of Samuel. But we can see how this is causing David great, great agony. And, and in verses four through eight, he explains the bodily terror that he feels in response to this. It, it makes it it's so bad, it makes him want to flee the scene. Look at verse four. He says, My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death. Have fallen upon me. Death, there is, I think, personified, and and uh, I don't I don't know if you can if you can uh, envision the personification of death coming to claim you. Maybe something like the the avenging angel that went through Egypt that night of the Passover. This awful figure who, who is death itself, and David is saying. I am feeling the terror of that figu- of death. And then he says, fear and trembling come upon me, and horror overwhelms me. So, so David is describing in vivid terms how troubled he is. He, he's, not, he's not hiding his feelings from the Lord under this undaunted appearance. He, he is, he's describing his body shaking and shuddering in response to this. Very authentic expression of, of how he's feeling. And then he tells us what he'd like to do in verses 6 and 7. He says, I say, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Yes, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness. C'est la. I would hurry to find a shelter from the raging wind and tempest. Now, I think what David is describing here is not what we read about in 2 Samuel 15. Because we did read about David leaving the city, right? But he doesn't, he doesn't abdicate the throne. He doesn't give up on God's project of having him be the king in Israel. No, he, he leaves Jerusalem, but it's not like he just quits on God's promises, or the nation of Israel, he, he gets out there and he fights against Absalom and Ahithophel, and he, and he sends people back into the city, and he does everything he can to maintain his position as God's king. In response to which I think we can say that he wanted to flee, he wanted to quit, but he didn't. He didn't abdicate the throne. He didn't say, okay, I'm done with Israel. I'm just going to wander away and be a nomad and be nobody out in the middle of nowhere. That's not what he did. He wanted to, verse 6, oh, that I had wings like a dove. And I would observe wings like a dove are not the only way he could flee, right? He could get a horse or a chariot or he could just walk off. But he doesn't do it. Instead, he continues to pray to the Lord Having explained his desire to quit and flee, he now turns to call on the Lord for justice. And then he stands fast to see the Lord act on his behalf. So, you know, I think there's a lot of talk about the Psalms that is partly accurate and then partly inaccurate. Because depending on who you read on the Psalms, they'll talk like like these people are just quitting, and, and like they're just giving up and they're expressing all these emotions where they're saying, I'm done with this. And okay, in part, yes. But you got to keep reading, don't you? Because when you keep reading, you see that they're not done with this. And they're not just giving up. And they're not just giving themselves over to their ang- anger and their agony and just yelling at the Lord, right? The way that some people describe the psalmist doing. That's not what's happening here. David would like to do that, but he's working through it and he's, and he's going to come out on the other side. Uh, and, and yesterday I was reading an, a commentator on the psalms and um, she said, you know, in the psalms you have these expressions of empire and vengeance and violence And then she goes on a little bit and she says, these are not the values that we would want to give to our children. And I'm sitting there looking at that book and I'm thinking to myself, oh, yes, they are. And the reason is because this is God's empire. And this violence and this vengeance is an expression of God's justice. And we most certainly do want our children to love God's kingdom and to love God's justice and to love God's righteousness being seen in the world. And that's what we see from David here in verse 9. When he says, verse verse 9, the ESV renders this, destroy, O Lord. Uh, More literally, you could render this, swallow up. This is the term that is used to describe the earth opening up its mouth to swallow Korah. And all those who aligned with him. And I think David is invoking that. I think David means for his audience to think about those who opposed Moses. And and what this is doing is it's saying, okay, for David, David is saying, as it were, I'm with Moses, and the people against me are like Korah and the rebels who joined with him. And what I want you to do, Lord, is what you did then. Open up the earth and swallow them. Why? To show that you're faithful to your word. To show that we can trust you. To show your people that they can believe in you. Because you do what you say you'll do. Destroy, O oh Lord, and then divide their tongues. This reminds us of, of Genesis 11, doesn't it? Where these people, they gather together against the Lord to build this big tower into heaven. And, and the Lord confuses the language. And you've got this guy in Genesis 10 named Peleg. Because in his, name, in his day, the earth was divided. So David is evoking these earlier acts of judgment that God has, has engaged in on behalf of his people. And he's basically saying, do for me now what you did for them then. Swallow up, O Lord. Divide their tongues. Why would he pray this? He explains. He says, I see violence and strife in the city. And once again, I think we should, we should envision violence and strife as personified characters who are at work in these scenes. They're loose in the city. Day and night, he says in verse 10, they go around it on its walls, and iniquity and trouble are within it, within the city. Ruin is in its midst. Oppression and fraud do not depart from its marketplace. So in verses 9 through 11, David describes all this wickedness that is loose in the city. And he wants the Lord to bring justice Because wickedness is bad for people. Wickedness is harmful for people. And it's only when those forces are defeated that people will be safe and secure and whole in their lives. So a prayer for justice and righteousness is not just meanness. It's a prayer for what's good for people. That's what David is is articulating here. And then he comes to the traitor in verses 12 through 15. And, you know, um, it, it's, it's one thing. I think what David is, is articulating here is that it's, it's one thing to have an inveterate enemy, to know, okay, those people, they just don't like me. They're not for me. They're not with me. They've never been with me. They've always been opposed to me. They're my enemies. I can deal with that. It's another thing to have somebody that was with you. Somebody that you have long shared experience with. Somebody that you shared a worldview with. Somebody that you counted on. Someone that gave you good counsel that you followed. And then that person turns on you. Verse 12, David says, It is not an enemy who taunts me. Then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me. Then I could hide from him. He's saying, look, if this was just... If these were Philistines, this would be no problem. I'm used to that. Verse 12, but it is you, a man, my equal. Now, This, this language of my equal, you might, we, we might render this something like a man of my order. Some, someone who was, who was in the same uh, line of thought that I was in. Someone who was with me in all these ways. My companion, my familiar friend, known to David. And then he describes how they used to enjoy conversation together. They shared mutual confidences. There in verse 14, we used to take sweet counsel together. And they even worshipped together. They worshipped the Lord. Look at what he says at the end of verse 14. Within God's house... We walked in the throng. It's probably a scene of uh, the, the pilgrims coming up to Jerusalem, the throngs of people for the feasts. And David is saying, we used to go together in the throngs of worshipers to the house of God. And so because, because this person has turned on him, now let's, let's, let's notice here what David has not concluded. David has not concluded Well, I've been betrayed, so there must not be any truth in the world. There must not be any final right answer. David has not come to that conclusion. That's a conclusion that many people are are putting forward today. Nobody's in the right. We're all wrong. David has not come to that conclusion. Nor has he come to the conclusion, not, not only is there no truth, well, God's cause in the world must not be right, or, or Israel, or my king. No, David has not come to any of those conclusions, has he? David still believes God's word. David believes that God has made these promises to him about his descendant, which means my enemies, from David's perspective, are God's enemies. And so he's aligning himself with the Lord when he says here in verse 15, let death steal over them. Basically what he's saying is let them get what they deserve. Let this personification of death capture them. Let them go down to Sheol alive. They are worthy of punishment. They have rebelled against you, Lord. Bring upon them the just judgment. For evil is in their dwelling place and in their heart. There's no, there's no equalization of truth and falsehood of morality and immorality, of good and evil. There's no, there's no moral equivalence being pursued here. No, what they are doing is evil. And because of the evil, they deserve judgment, is what David is saying. So I think that, that statement there in verses 12 through 15 is the centerpiece of the psalm. And then uh, uh, after it, in verses 16 through 19... We have David articulating his faith in God. Look at what he says here. I call to God and the Lord will save me. He's confident in God. This is a confidence that we want to imitate. There there is no difficulty from which the Lord cannot save us. There is no sin that the Lord cannot help us overcome. There is no... uh, I don't know, emotional pain that the Lord cannot comfort us in the midst of. I call to God, David says, and the Lord will save me. Just an observation here. We don't often see uh, that Lord there with the, the you know uh, small cap R and small cap D, which is telling you that you got the name of Yahweh. We don't see that all that frequently uh, in, in book two of the Psalms, but here it is. I call to God, and Yahweh will save me. And then look at how he describes his prayer. This is a great example for us to follow. Evening and, and morning and at noon, all the time he's praying. All the time he's praying. I utter, now we return to the, the language of verse two, I utter my complaint. And moan. Yes, he's complaining. Yes, he's moaning. As he, as he roams around, he can't sit still. But he's praying. And it seems that his confidence that God is going to deliver him is on the rise as a result of his prayer. This is so so instructive for us. Because what we see here is that when David finds himself in difficulty, he goes to the one who has the solutions to the difficulty. He goes to the Lord. Look at what he says at the end of verse 17 there. I utter my complaint and moan, same words from verse 2, and he hears my voice. David is coming in accordance with God's word, in faith, and he's confident that he's going to be heard. Verse 18, he redeems my soul in safety. Uh, there's There's a form... Here, this, this word that's rendered in safety, um, there's a, a form of the word um, um, shalom here. He redeems my soul in peace. He redeems my soul in peace from the battle that I wage. There are all these forces arrayed against him there in verse 18. For many are arrayed against me. All these people are against David, and he goes to the Lord. And he's confident that the Lord is going to reestablish peace and safety for him. Verse 19, God will give ear and humble them. He who is enthroned from of old. So here, David's knowledge of God as the everlasting one. the, The one true judge of all the earth is assuring him. He who is enthroned from of old is going to give me satisfaction against these people who are doing me wrong. And then at the end of verse 19, it's because they're unrepentant, because they do not change and do not fear God. So David is confident in the character of God that he's going to, he's going to judge the unrepentant. So uh, this section here in verses 16 through 19, it matches the section in verses 9 through 11, doesn't it? Because in verses 9 through 11, what you have is all this wickedness and all this evil at work. And, and it's like David's response to that is, the one who is enthroned from of old is the one I'm trusting. So so, so I think that these, these statements are corresponding to one another. And then similarly, verses 20 and 21 are going to correspond to verses 4 through 8, where David describes his anguish and, and his fear. And, and it, it seems that the reason he is so scared is because this guy has been so treacherous. So look at verse 20. My companion stretched out his hand against his friends. This guy didn't attack long-standing enemies. This guy attacked his friends. And And then what he did was he profaned a sacred covenant. Look at verse 20 there. He violated his covenant. That is scary. That's frightful because you can't trust people and and it, who 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 do this you can't trust these kinds of traitors. and if if a friend a sweet counselor is going to turn on like this turn on you like this who can you trust he describes in verse 21 this shocking betrayal he says his speech was smooth as butter yet war was in his heart what what would what would speech as smooth as butter be like I think it would be assurances of loyalty, and, and not, not um, ones that would cause suspicion. Speech that was smooth as butter would be easy to accept. It would be gliding down smoothly. It's, it's, it's easy to say, well, nobody's going to question him. Look at, look at all these professions of loyalty. Look at this long-standing record of faithfulness. His speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. Even as he's saying all these kind things, he's planning I'm going to turn on him. First opportunity I get. His words were softer than oil, David continues. His words, his words made, made things move smoothly. He was so faithful, yet they were drawn swords. The, the, the kind words were weapons. They were weapons being used to prepare the attack. This is a man who's profaned a sacred compact. He he spoke these words of assurance and reassurance and fidelity and loyalty. But in his heart, he meant to make war on David. All those nice statements, they were hostile weapons ready to strike. This outrageous treachery, it's remarkable how, how David is using his own experience to instruct other people. This outrageous treachery is providing David with an opportunity to instruct others. And what he wants others to do is to do as he has done in verse 22, where this is is a a command now. In the midst of this response to this wicked traitor, he, he, he utters a command, apparently to those who agree with him. Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. You know, there's some statements in the Bible that you just look at and you think to yourself, am I going to believe this or not? Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. You can believe that one. You can believe it. You should lock onto that. Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. This word for burden here, it's related to the, a verb that, that means uh, to give. Cast what is given to you. Something like that we could say. Cast what is given to you. And in, in this context, clearly, what is given to David, it, these difficult circumstances. Cast it on the Lord, and he will sustain you. And then at the end of verse 22 there, he will never permit the righteous to be moved. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. It's the Lord keeping the righteous, isn't it? It's the Lord making it so that the righteous don't stumble. It's the Lord making it so that they don't slide away. And there's a, there's a, a, there's a two-sided thing here, isn't there? Cast your burden on the Lord. He will sustain you. In fact, He will never let the righteous. Who are the righteous? They're the ones that are going to cast their burden on Him. That's who they are. They're the ones who are going to repent of sin like David. They're the ones who are going to believe God's promises like David. That's who the righteous are. Cast your burden on the Lord. He will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. We cast our burdens. He sustains. He holds us fast. But, verse 23, here's what the wicked get. We're getting outcomes in verses 22 and 23. And in verses 22 and 23, we're getting sort of the correspondence to verses 1 through 3. David, is, he's praying in verses 1 through 3, and then he's describing the outcomes in verses 22 and 23. Here's what the wicked are going to get. But you, O God, will cast them down into the pit of destruction. An- another way to render this pit of destruction would be something like the deepest well of the pit. You're going ca- to put them where they deserve to go. You will cast them down into the pit of destruction. Men of blood and treachery shall not live out half their days. Uh, um, This is a statement that says, if you live to kill other people, if you live to betray other people, that's going to circle back around to you. And it's going to come calling for you. You live that way, you will not live to be an old man. Men of blood and treachery shall not live half their days. But then at the end, David says, but I will trust in you. So there's a clear contrast. Why would would someone betray the king of Israel? I think we get an insight into it in in the Mark 14 passage that we read. Uh, in, In other gospel narratives... Um, we, we read that it was the anointing of Jesus in, that in part incited Judas to go and betray him. And even in the Mark 14 passage, after Judas, Judas is probably among those who are scolding Mary for anointing Jesus because this could have been sold for all this money that of course we wanted to give to the poor. But then what does he get from those seeking to kill Jesus? He gets money from them. Why does he want money Because he wants to make his life more comfortable, because he wants to provide for... I don't know what he wants money for, but we all understand that, don't we? Why would somebody pursue blood and treachery to advance their own cause? You go that way, you live for yourself, it's not going to turn out well for you. But you commit yourself to the Lord and His cause and His purposes, and it will turn out well for you. You trust Him. As we as we bring this to a close this morning, um, I, I, I want to return to the idea that David was betrayed in, in 2 Samuel 15 not only by Ahithophel, his counselor, he was betrayed by Absalom, his son. And in response to that, just as, as we sort of, I would, I would invite you to transpose that thought and ask yourself what father had more right to the loyalty of his children than our father in heaven and what king has more claim on our allegiance than jesus so so what i'm what i'm suggesting in these questions is that the betrayal of david that we're reading about here is like a shadow and type of the way that jesus would be betrayed not merely by Judas, but by all who are unfaithful to him. And, and I think we can, we can look at our lives and we can ask ourselves, are we loyal to our covenant Lord? Are we loyal to him? Am I living in a way that reflects my commitment to his kingdom? Now, I don't want anybody to get too beaten up over this. Because in all the places where we see infidelity, and it's all over the place, it's in our thoughts, it's in our words, it's in our actions, it's in our desires, it pervades us. But there's hope, because if we repent and we turn to the Lord, we serve this remarkable God who is pleased to keep the covenant even with people who don't keep the covenant. We serve this God who is able to forgive, unlike Ahithophel, this God is able to forgive those who have betrayed him. And so if you're here this morning and you're not a believer in Jesus, what we want to say to you is you're not going to find another God like this. You're not going to find another Savior like Jesus who welcomes with open arms those who have been most treacherous to him. So our hope is not in our ability to keep this covenant, this new covenant that we're in with God through the blood of Jesus, our hope is in the fact that he keeps it. Our hope is in the fact that he keeps us in spite of our failures because he loves to show mercy to the repentant. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to think ever more deeply on the fact That Jesus was betrayed and alone. Abandoned and forsaken. And as a result of that, we are never alone. And Lord, we pray that you would cause this, this overwhelming love to transform us. God, we don't want to be wicked. We don't want to be unfaithful we want to be holy we want to be devoted to you and so we pray that you would do the work lord we pray that you would help us to believe the words of this psalm to cast our burden on you and to experience your sustenance and to experience your power making it so that we are never moved do it father we ask for your glory In the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit, amen.